Our Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of the prophet Micah. Micah chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through the first line of verse 5 this evening, what I have called 5a, the word of the Lord. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 12 this evening. The word of our God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please turn with me once again back to Micah chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. Who is a God like Yahweh, 
pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. Who is a God like Yahweh? As we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, we celebrate a king who is utterly unique. Though all things were created by him and for him, the living God came into this world, born in a manger. He came into this world, not as the kings of this world do, in order to be served. Rather, Jesus came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Who is this child? In Matthew chapter 1, verse 31, God gives his explicit commandment to Joseph, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Son of God came to save us, and he came to save us from our sins. Yet tonight, with the help of the prophet Micah, we are going to look at two other aspects of why the Messiah came. As the people of God, we face terrible enemies, not just our own sin, but terrible enemies from without, and enemies that arise from within the church. Jesus comes to deliver us from them both. We begin with the fierce enemies that the true people of God face, enemies who come from outside the church. Think for a moment about ISIS, the Islamic State of Syria and Iraq. ISIS is utterly notorious for its brutality against women, for beheading Western journalists, for genocide, and all manner of crimes against humanity. For example, after displacing or killing all 60,000 Christians who lived in Mosul, the only Christians who remained in the area were the young women that ISIS kept or sold as sex slaves. Nor is the hatred that ISIS has for Christians merely incidental. Rather, it cuts to the heart of what ISIS is all about. That is why when the leaders of ISIS released a video of them beheading Ethiopian and Egyptian Christians, they gave it this title, A Message in Blood Written to the Nation of the Cross. We can scarcely imagine what it must be like to stand boldly for Christ in a region where ISIS is a power at all. Here's one of the great tragic ironies of history. Modern ISIS is roughly in the same geographical area as ancient Assyria was, that is in Syria and in northern Iraq. And the ancient Assyrians were every bit as brutal as the modern terrorists. There are, however, two very important differences for us to keep in mind. Uh, Ancient Assyria couldn't care less about the religion of Israel. Um, Israel was just this tiny, insignificant country that they happened to rule over. All they really cared about Israel was that Israel was loyal and that Israel sent them tribute. But the second thing to keep in mind is actually what's most important. Modern ISIS has largely been decimated by the vastly superior military might of the West. So it lingers on and it's evil, but it's not a threat to you and me. 
Ancient Assyria, by contrast, was the one superpower of its day. There was nobody, nobody in the ancient world at that time who could resist the Assyrian Empire. Or was there? That's part of what Micah wants to make clear. One thing is clear. Assyria wasn't merely a hypothetical threat. Micah prophesied both before and after the Assyrians had destroyed the northern tribes of Israel in 722 B.C. Tonight's passage comes around two decades after the northern tribes have been completely wiped out as a nation, at a time when Jerusalem and the surrounding towns have been overrun by the Assyrian forces, and they've been overrun by refugees from the north, refugees who knew firsthand just how ruthless the conquering Assyrians could be. How'd you like to be part of the people of God in a time and a place like that? That is not an easy time or a comfortable place to take your stand for the living God. Look at verse 1 with me. The Lord speaks into that situation. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. What is it like to live in a city under siege? Um, A while back, because I have a broad interest in history, I read several books about Leningrad being under siege during World War II. Let me just tell you, that's not the type of thing you want to read if you have a queasy stomach. It, It is almost beyond our imagination to think about what it's like to be a parent trapped in a city watching your own children starve to death and then to discover that there are actually some people in that city who are so cold-hearted but they're actually not only hoarding food they're using the tragedy that is all around them to try to get rich that happened in Leningrad It probably was happening in ancient Judah as well. It's one of those things about sinful human beings. Our sin just keeps coming out. The Assyrians who had devastated the northern tribes have come down and laid siege to Jerusalem. Outside the city walls, there was almost certain death for anyone who would go out. But inside, it wasn't a whole lot better. It was precisely in a time like this that the Lord speaks to the prophet Micah about the coming Messiah. While we can't be entirely certain, it's very likely that verse 1 is a description of Israel's complete humiliation. Bruce Walkie suggests, daughter of troops evokes the scant military forces that Jerusalem had while they huddled inside the walls in comparison to the obviously overwhelming forces that laid siege against the city. Beloved, humanly speaking, Israel was doomed. The juxtaposition between Israel's crisis and Israel's Savior, the Messiah that that Michael will introduce in the very next verse, could hardly be any more stark. And yet on this side of the cross, we can already see something of the radical majesty of the coming Christ. 
When Micah writes, with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek, he's speaking about Israel's humiliation in the 8th century B.C. But we know that the king of glory will come and choose to be struck on the cheek, not out of weakness, but that so through his life-giving death, he could conquer Satan's sin and death on behalf of all of you, his people. As one Lutheran scholar put it, Jesus gave his sacred head for wounding, his divine face, which is worthy of all honor and praise, before which one day every knee will bow, he freely offered up for shameful treatment and beating, for it was precisely by becoming such a humiliated, rejected, and crucified king that our king redeemed us and transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and into his glorious kingdom of light, from the darkness of judgment to the bright rays of Easter and to the hope of eternal glory. Who is a God like Yahweh, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? That's the question. That's what Micah's name means. Who is a God like Yahweh? Beloved, there is none like him. No, not even one. And this is the God whom we meet and whom we worship in the manger. Yet as terrible as our external enemies can be, Michael wants us to know that the church's internal enemies are every bit as great, and because they arise from within the people of God, they are even more appalling. To understand the beauty and the grace of the Good Shepherd, we have to consider all the shepherds who came before him. Jesus, when he comes, will say, all who came before me were thieves and robbers. We have to consider what the the shepherds, those in authority over Israel, were actually like to understand the beauty of the good shepherd. And so Micah weaves on sparing descriptions of Israel's ruling class throughout his short book. Micah opens his book by declaring that the Assyrian destruction of the northern tribes was actually God's judgment against the sinful nation. The Lord had turned Samaria to rubble because of the sins, the idolatry of her people and the sins of her leaders. Were the Assyrians incredibly wicked? Yes. Yes, they were. But ultimately, they were the rod of the Lord's anger against his own rebellious and idolatrous people. The question is, where did that leave Judah? And of course, by extension, where does that leave us? If Judah was a righteous nation with God-honoring rulers, wouldn't God's absolute sovereignty mean that they would be completely safe under the Almighty's sovereign care? Yes, it would. But the fierce enemies from without are matched by corruption from within. What does the Lord think of the rich, the powerful, the rulers who are in Judah? Chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, reads like this. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds, 
When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields, and they seize them, and houses, and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. I mean, is that any way for the rich among the people of God to behave? Or consider what the Lord says directly to the leaders in chapter 3. Listen, you leaders of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate justice? You who hate the good and love the evil? Who tear the skin from off my people? and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. You know, we sometimes censor books to some degree for young children, and there are parts of the Bible that are really hard for young people to hear, but it's important with their parents' help, that they would hear the full truth. That this shows us the radical nature of the sin of the rulers that God had entrusted as under-shepherds of his people Israel. The leaders in Judah hate good and love evil. And quite graphically, they tear the skin off the people of God and their flesh from off their bones. To make matters worse, the so-called prophets also lead the people astray. Uh, They proclaim peace if they have something to eat, but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to pay them. They're prophets for a price. The Lord says, her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. That's what Micah says. At this point, I wonder if the faithful remnant is ready to throw open the gates of the city so the Assyrians can get it all over with. I, I mean, the terror from without is not nearly as bad in some respects as the corruption from within. It is against this incredibly dark backdrop But the Lord through Micah reveals the greatest news that will ever be told. Look at verse 2 with me. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Micah is emphatic. Jerusalem, the city where the Lord has graciously set his name, the capital and seat of power in Judah, is hopelessly corrupt within and hopelessly oppressed from without. But God. That's the thing we always have to remember. But God. We cannot deliver ourselves. But God acts on behalf of his people. Unless the Lord acts, we can have no hope. But because the Lord acts, his people never need to be afraid. God is sending a message of extraordinary comfort through Micah 
Yet please notice that the Lord doesn't address the movers and shakers inside of Jerusalem. That's not who the message goes to. Or even the godly remnant who are trapped inside her walls. Rather, the Lord speaks to the little town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem was so insignificant, it wasn't on the map. If you were going to give someone directions to go to Bethlehem, you'd have to tell them, you know the road to Ephrath? Yeah, so take the road to Ephrath, and you'll bump into Bethlehem. But don't blink, or you'll miss the whole town. It was that insignificant in the eyes of the world. Why Bethlehem? Well, first of all, this is the way the Lord delights to act. As the Apostle Paul would later tell the Corinthians, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Uh, That's one of the things the Lord is doing here. He is making clear that this is not going to be a cooperative effort between the Almighty and the supposedly important people in Jerusalem. Salvation would come from the Lord and from the Lord alone. Second, by bringing the Messiah out of Bethlehem, the Lord was making tangibly clear that he was fulfilling the covenant promises that he had made to Abraham and to David their seed, that through their promised seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's particularly true of the Davidic covenant. The Lord is making clear by using the little town of Bethlehem that God is the one who's acting, and he's acting out of faithfulness to his people. Now, that wasn't necessary. In fact, it was we might say a bit inconvenient to Joseph and Mary. They, after all, were from Nazareth. But the Lord cares more about everyone grasping that he is the faithful, promise-keeping God than that we find his ways convenient to us. God is faithful. God is gracious. God is good. Now pay particular attention how the coming Messiah is described. He will be from you and for me. That's what the Lord is saying here. The Hebrew actually emphasizes that contrast. From you, that is from the Jews, for me. Jesus would be a true human being. The promised seed of Abraham and the promised seed of David Salvation would come, as God promised, from the Jews. This Messiah, in that sense, is a true human being that was born a Jewish boy, would be from you. But unlike the vast majority of the leaders in Israel's history, and ultimately distinct from even the very best rulers in Israel's history, Jesus Christ would be the king who would be perfectly for God always zealous for the Lord's righteousness and for his reputation all the days of his life. You remember um, when Jesus meets the woman at the well in Samaria? You know, the disciples go off. Jesus is tired from the journey. He's resting there at the well. The Samaritan woman comes up. 
disciples have gone into town to get food. Jesus is there ministering to this woman, and then she's leaving as the disciples come back. And the disciples come to him and say, Lord, here, eat something. And Jesus says, I have food to eat, but you do not know about. And they look puzzled at each other. I mean, did someone slip him a sandwich? Where did Jesus get food? And then Jesus says, my food, my very food is to do the will of my Father who sent me and to complete the work which he has given me to do. Or as Hebrews would later explain, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus is the one king who perfectly seeks the pleasure of God in heaven. Therefore the Lord declares through Micah that the Messiah will come from you, but for me. And this Messiah will be the ruler in Israel, not just the Savior. It was a very odd debate that took place some 30 years ago about whether or not people could have Jesus as their Savior and not as their Lord, or maybe their Lord later on. Beloved, you cannot divide Christ. He is Savior and Lord. We rightly celebrate the fact that he's given the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. But Mike is saying he's going to be the ruler. He is not only Savior. He is our Savior and our Lord. A ruler whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And that last expression must have really puzzled the faithful remnant, I mean, the people that actually cared, the faithful remnant in Micah's day, those who were seeking to live by every word that comes out of the mouth of our God, and they wanted to understand it. But how do you make sense of a ruler coming out of Bethlehem who is from ancient days, actually woodenly, from days of eternity. The only one who's eternal is God. God doesn't come out of Bethlehem, does he? Right? God's going to come from heaven with power and glory. Well, I want to suggest that it's not like they could have just figured it out. This is one of those wonderful Old Testament passages which raises questions that only the coming of the Son of God answers. And so we're privileged, we're on this side of the cross, this side of the empty tomb, this side of Pentecost, and we can understand what this means. Because the child conceived in Mary's womb is both fully God and fully man, he is from eternity as God, but from Bethlehem as a man. Salvation is both, in terms of coming from Jesus, is both from you, but for me. The wonder of it all. As we will sing at the close of worship this evening, he came down to earth from heaven, who is God and Lord of all. And his shelter was a stable, and his cradle was a stall. With the poor and mean and lowly, lived on earth, our Savior 
holy. Who is a God like Yahweh? There is none who are like him, not even one. Micah is speaking astonishingly good news in the darkest of hours, but it is news for a later time. Look at verse 3 with me. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who was in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Beloved, it was a long time. For another seven centuries, the Lord would both judge and deliver his people, but he would not exalt them until Christ would come. The people of God would be harassed by the Assyrians and then sent into the Babylonian captivity. Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome would take turns being the worldly powers who harassed Israel and demanded their loyalty. For this reason, even when the remnant returned from the Babylonian captivity, they never considered the exile to have fully come to an end. They were still waiting for the Lord to return to Zion. They were waiting for the latter days. Latter days which Micah himself describes like this. The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. Seven centuries after this promise is made, you can understand that that desire they would have as we sung this morning, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus. Actually, we sang that this evening before at the beginning of worship. For centuries, the tiny faithful remnant would wait. For centuries, they would appear to be waiting in vain. Yet though he might tarry, the Lord is faithful. Therefore, nobody who ever hopes in the Lord will have been found to have hoped in vain. But isn't it interesting how the Lord would return to Zion? Most of the people in Israel are looking for the Lord to return to Zion with a blaze of glory. While first century Israel groaned under Roman oppression, once again facing enemies without and corruption within, the Lord would not show up with chariots nor with legions of angels. No, the King of glory would send deliverance through the labor pains of a teenage Jewish girl. Mary might have appeared to be little more than a pawn, dragged to Bethlehem with her husband as part of Caesar's scheme to wring a few extra shekels of tax revenue out of Palestine. But as Mary cried out and gave birth to her firstborn son, the Lord God was sending his firstborn son through her to be the savior of the world. This makes me think of that beautiful Contemporary Christmas song, Mary, did you know? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you've delivered will soon deliver you. Mary, did you know? 
but we're not actually told how much Mary knew. All we're told is that she treasured these things in her heart. But Micah knew. Micah speaks of this man not only as a baby, but as the ruler come from God. Verse 4, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. As I pointed out this morning, we sometimes sing, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. In fact, we will sing those words again next Sunday morning, and that is right and good. The incarnation veils some aspects of the radiant glory of God. Yet the incarnation also reveals the character and glory of God. The manger reminds us that contrary to all natural expectations, that God is by nature meek and gentle. The Lord has the humility to take to himself a true human nature, to be born in a manger and to die on a cross, all to save us, his people, from our sins. But he is also the omnipotent ruler, the all-powerful ruler who will tread all his and all our enemies into the dust. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Therefore, all who trust in him are completely secure, and he will be exalted forever. We must not skip over that last line. Is Jesus simply going to deliver a small group of people in the Middle East? And is it there and there alone that he will set up the kingdom of God? Beloved, not on your life. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great, to the ends of the earth. Just a word about a very small detail in the text. Sometimes small details can give us a lot of insight. Whose flock will the Messiah shepherd? Look at the text. Whose flock will the Messiah shepherd? Micah tells us that he shall stand and shepherd his own flock. See, Jesus is not an under-shepherd, let alone a hireling. He is our good shepherd. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. The ruler is David's son, yet at the same time he is David's Lord. As Jason Soskin puts it, the ruler will stand, that is, he takes up his rule, so that his people may sit and dwell in safety. He is active so that his people may rest from their troubled cares. Those grieving over the weakness of their fallible kings or over the injustices perpetrated by their own human authorities, he brings the very presence of Yahweh into their midst and his rule extends to the end of the earth. That's beautiful, but we still live on this side of glory. For all the blessings of the new covenant 
we still do not see all things under Christ's feet. Yet Micah is crying out through the ages to us, remember that he who promised is faithful. Remember that it is better to walk with the good shepherd through the valley of the shadow of death than it is to lie down in green pastures without him. And remember, he is our peace. And to we who are privileged to live on this side of the manger, this side of the cross, and this side of the empty tomb, Micah is crying out, Remember that God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ, and he will rule from the river even to the ends of the earth. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. Amen.